Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōnai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. We're creating new data all the time. Those summer holiday snaps you took or the clip of your cat being a dork. And of course, those New Year's resolutions that you typed up. Where do you physically save this precious data? On your computer somewhere? On a hard drive? Or maybe you save it to the cloud and it gets sent to a massive data center? When you scale this up to businesses, research centers, governments, countries, it's a huge amount of data, and it's just getting bigger day by day. So how do we store it all? Hello and welcome to the first new Hour-Changing World for 2023. And I'm delighted to be back with you and looking forward to bringing you more fascinating stories of science from all around Aotearoa. Today we're looking at the potential for a greener future for our cities and our data storage. Later, I speak to a student investigating the potential benefits of having native plants growing off the side of our buildings. But first, Dr. Joe Schutz has been focusing on the problem of long-term data storage and looking to luminescence as a possible solution. We are producing alarming amounts of data every day. Uh, some of this is very important uh, to us personally, be that you know photos or keepsakes, and a lot of it is very important uh, kind of socially, um, you can think of all sorts of like records, financial records, uh, archives, uh, cultural records. Um, and so there's all sorts of stuff that we obviously don't want to lose. Joe is a researcher at the Robinson Research Institute at Tehinanawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. He's working on what he calls non-volatile memory, something that stores data safely, even when not powered up. So where you can basically write something to it and leave it in a cupboard for X amount of time uh, and still retrieve that data later. If you're my age, you can think here about that stack of CDs or DVDs that you have somewhere with your favorite song saved on them. As long as they haven't been scratched, you could pull those bad boys out right now and blast out some 90s bangers. So yeah, non-volatile memory uh, has existed since kind of the dawn of time, when you think about it, um, because people have been you know, writing things on cave walls, mm. uh, inscribing things into stone, clay tablets, eventually writing them down, and yeah, eventually getting to where we are today with um, all sorts of technology sitting in our computers. There are three main types of memory that people will be familiar with, um, and those are your hard disk drives, uh, solid state drives, and optical disks. Yeah, basically every computer in the world now will have uh, an HDD or an SSD that basically are very good at storing large amounts of data for reasonable amounts of time and allowing very fast read-write access. Uh, hence, they're very popular. So think of an external hard drive. It works by electromagnetic storage. But there's an issue with relying on electromagnetic storage devices. They just don't last very long. These will spontaneously demagnetize or spontaneously lose charge over time. The average kind of lifetime, this is coming from big data centers uh, for their, their traditional or conventional hard drives, is about five to ten years. So they need to rapidly replace everything very frequently in order to you know, maintain the storage. The other option is to store data using light or optics. Yeah, so optical disks cover your 
CDs and your DVDs and your Blu-ray, uh, which were very popular uh, some decades ago, uh, mm-hmm. because when they were first invented, they actually could store more data than a hard drive could. And then, of course, they were rapidly eclipsed by hard drives and solid-state drives. Um, so now they offer you know tens of uh, terabytes. Uh, commonly, and your best Blu-ray is typically about 100 gigabytes, so significantly lower. Large-scale data centers, those belonging to, say, Google, Amazon, or Apple, are these massive spaces with huge cavernous rooms filled with servers to store, process, and distribute data. They also distinguish between what they term hot and cold data for storage. Hot data is what you need to access frequently and rapidly. And cold is this long-term data we're talking about. It needs to be stored safely somewhere, but not accessed all that often. As we move more towards using the cloud to store our data, instead of, say, CDs or external hard drives, where it physically ends up is in one of these large data centres. We're producing more and more data every day, um, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of photos uh, people take, and yeah, that needs to go somewhere. It's not ideal to put that on an external hard drive and leave it in a cupboard for 10, 15 years, or you will likely lose a lot of that data. So yeah, cloud storage seems to be the the way of the future. Um, And in order to really kind of future-proof that cloud storage, we need longer-term memory. So for this cold data storage, your ideal scenario would be to have something that stores data very long-term, it's nice and stable, and doesn't require any special treatments or environmental conditions. You write the data on using binary code, zeros and ones, bits, and it would just sit there until you pulled it down and used something to read the data off. Optical disks do this, like my beloved stack of CDs. If you store them well, they can hold data for a very long time, but they have limitations. Current optical disks uh, all work based on the kind of same principle, and that's that you have some 2D disk, um, and you hit it with a laser, and you're basically looking at the amount of light that comes off the disk as you spin it. So, you know, if that's higher or lower, you basically have your zeros and ones. Um, and so this is done just by inscribing small, like, pits into the, uh, the surface of the disk. Higher level optical disks, so some of your like ultra high density Blu-ray that we're working on, manages to inscribe a second layer. But you are solely dealing with two layers. Um, and this is the kind of fundamental limits on the capacity of these disks. This is all based on like reflection, effectively. So we are focusing on luminescence as a new kind of read-write mechanism. Luminescence is the emission of light from a substance. In Joe's case, when he hits it with a laser. There are different kinds of luminescence, but it might help to think here about those stars you might have had stuck to your roof as a kid. They absorb light of one colour during the day, and then once you turn your lamp off to go to sleep, they emit light, and you can see them glowing in a slightly different colour. And Joe is really excited about the potential of using luminescence for data storage. Big advantage of this is that you can now uh, extend into the volume of a material, so you're no longer limited by one or two planes. You can kind of have infinitely many, uh, depending on how big you want your device to be. That immediately increases the capacity massively. Additionally, yeah, you can start using other properties uh, to encode data. So, for example, with the optical disk, you had your one and your zero based on a high or low uh, reflectivity. In the case of luminescence, you can start doing multiplexing. So that would basically entails uh, changing the intensity of the fluorescence at different points. 
So for example, yeah, you don't need to have a low intensity or a high intensity. You can have a zero and a 10% and a 20%. All of a sudden I have 10 bits per one spot. Uh, and you can also multiplex using wavelength because, you know, maybe your, your device fluoresces green uh, and you can shift it to orange and you can have green and orange coming out at the same time in different ratios, uh, therefore increasing your bit density even more. So the potential for ultra-high capacity uh, using luminescence is, is remarkable. Do you have a number for that? We can, in principle, using uh, something with the same dimensions as an optical disc, get up to several hundred petabytes. A petabyte, by the way, is about a thousand terabytes. So, yep, that's a lot of holiday snaps. But he's talking in principle and the potential of. Where is the research at right now? We're f largely focused on materials at this stage, uh, so investigating different ways that we can actually do this reading and writing. I mean, we have demonstrated that this works fundamentally. We have done two-dimensional reading and writing uh, in the materials. The big thing with uh, this kind of work and the materials development is that every material is different. One of the most important thing is the longevity of these. So we are really trying to get away from this five to ten year limit. We want to uh, achieve lifetimes exceeding you know, 100 years if possible. When Joe is talking materials here, he means the physical thing they will use to encode the data in using lasers. And what he's testing right now are crystals of different fluorides and oxides. These crystals will then be the new form of data storage. He'll use lasers to write on the data and another set of lasers to read it off. So far, we've been chatting in Joe's office, surrounded by large books about physics and optics and handwritten maths equations on the walls. But a big part of his work is some good old-fashioned chemistry in the lab downstairs. Just this half here is basically um, where I am largely working. So again, yeah, we're preparing these crystals, fluorides and oxides, and that does involve the use of a lot of kind of dangerous precursors. We do all of our work inside these glove boxes. The glove boxes are these large, clear-fronted cabinets at standing height. And inside I can see several racks of chemicals and some equipment for weighing and mixing. But what's most striking are the gloves, these large black shoulder-length rubber gloves poking outwards from the box. The glove boxes are carefully controlled environments that have zero oxygen or water inside. Perfect for mixing up some crystal recipes. So yeah, this one here is where I'll do my like initial mixing of chemicals and whatnot. Um, I then seal everything, migrate it out these airlocks, and into this older looking glove box. So this is custom made uh, and it connects to various furnaces. Um, so you can see down here, this is an induction furnace. So this will uh, get our materials up to around uh, 1300, 1400 degrees Celsius. Yeah. <laughs> and this here is just a tube furnace which will go to around 1100, 1200. And this is what I use for the most part, making my, my fluoride materials. Um, so in order to actually make these materials, yeah, we need to heat them up uh, very, very hot in order to get the kind of phases um, and the purities that we're after. Looking at some of the crystals he's already made, they look kind of like quartz or maybe large grains of salt. And some of them were more transparent than others. Lots of trial and error, he says, in all stages of the recipe, the mixing of the materials and the time and temperatures in the furnace. The testing happens elsewhere, on the next floor down. This is our optics lab. Uh, for the most part, you're just looking at a bunch of different spectrometers. 
And a spectrometer is a machine that can read different wavelengths of light? Yes, yeah, exactly that. I mean, the main principle is that uh, light comes in and hits the sample in here, and we detect what kind of light's coming off of it. Um, so we can tune the light that comes in and tune the light that we're reading. Um, so yeah, you can really kind of characterize a material or at least um, determine how useful it is likely to be using a machine just like this. So your day-to-day -day then is investigating new materials to try, mixing them and baking them upstairs, and then testing them down here? Yes, yeah, exactly that. Um, that is very much the experimental side. Um, a large amount of my day is also uh, reading about what other kind of materials other people are looking at um, and trying to extrapolate from that what materials will be useful for us. There's also, and I mean, there is a great deal of like intuition that comes out of it. The more of these materials you look at, the more you can look at somebody else's data and kind of predict what you think that will look like under different circumstances. Joe really likes this mix of reading, thinking and hands-on tinkering. Plus, he really enjoys the fact that he's working towards a practical application. Back in his office, I ask, can I expect to swap out my CD stack for some luminescence encoded crystals anytime soon? We certainly hope so. Uh, so there is a lot that goes into really um, designing any kind of commercial device um, with these kind of technologies. There are also a number of different approaches to this kind of long-term optical data storage. We certainly hope that ours uh, proves to be the most promising. But yeah, I would definitely imagine that some forms of, of long-term storage uh, will be commercially available and predominantly used by data centers in the next decade. One of the great uh, features of this, this kind of memory um, and optical memory in general is that it is uh, significantly lower powered than conventional memories. So we do not suddenly need these fancy cooling systems for, for large data centers. And I mean, a lot of uh, currently stored cold data exists on these power-hungry uh, devices. I believe data centers are currently responsible for using somewhere between 1% and 3% of the world's electricity in any given year. And anything we can do to reduce that usage uh, should be encouraged. Thanks to Dr. Joe Schutz, researcher at the Robinson Research Institute at Teheranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. Now, from the future of data storage to the future of our urban spaces. By 2050, the world's population is expected to reach 9.8 billion, 70% of which, it's estimated, will live in urban areas. There are different interpretations of what form our future cities will take. Whether it's clustered high-rises clad with solar panels connected by transit drones, or artificial islands surrounded by water instead of concrete, or even the line. Saudi Arabia's crazy-sounding plan to build a linear city for 9 million people in the desert. Designed by world-leading architects, the line is 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide, 170 kilometers long, and housed within an elegant mirror glass facade. But what these future city projects do have in common are the goals of making our urban areas more energy efficient, sustainable, less polluting and greener. And it's this last goal that Maggie McKinnon is interested in. I studied biology first. My parents are conservation biologists, so I was certainly raised with this um, save the animals <laughs> uh, goal in my life. Um, 
and I initially went through the kind of traditional biology route, but I also had this interest in architecture, and initially I thought they were kind of two separate things. But with the rise of the fields of sustainable built environment research and regenerative architecture, I saw an opportunity that I could merge the two. So that's what this PhD research is trying to do, is looking at how we could use our buildings to help with biodiversity conservation in cities. And there's also that um, human well-being side of just bringing more nature into cities for people to enjoy as well. Maggie is a PhD candidate in the School of Architecture at Teherenawaka. I meet her outside one of the university buildings on Kelburn Parade. She takes me through some double doors, up some flights of stairs, and then out into a small green area between this building and the next. This is where her study site is. So there was an old building here and they demolished it and they weren't going to do anything with the site for a little while. And I needed a place to build some green walls, so they let me have this one. And I just used the existing foundations to build, uh, I guess, a wall facade to, yeah, put some green walls on. It's a steep little triangle of clear space. Further up, it's grassy and ringed with trees. But where we're standing is the flattened concrete base of the demolished building. All that's left are two low brick walls that meet at a right angle. And built onto these are a series of large rectangular wooden frames. Some are blank, with just a small round sensor sitting in the middle but others are the backboard onto which black pockets full of soil and plants have been hung. So I wanted to see how green walls full of native plants that would be good for native birds would perform in Wellington with all the wind. And I know quite often a lot of exotic plants are used in green walls for a particular look. But I wanted to specifically choose plants that could provide resources for birds. So that was part of it, just seeing how those native plants would do on the walls. And then also uh, a bit of the thermal performance, so how they change the microclimate around them. So looking at temperature and humidity to see if I've seen in the literature that they can, you know, cool the air around them. So I wanted to try to measure that. And also some other things like uh, their ability to buffer wind and uh, kind of provide shade as well. So I've been measuring light levels and stuff here. So there's kind of two big questions that you're addressing. One is, can the native plants grow on walls and therefore provide resources for native birds? And then the second is, if you do have a green wall like this, what does that mean for the building, the environment around? Yeah, the overarching argument for my thesis is like wanting to increase biodiversity in cities. However, I know that perhaps not all building owners would be interested in that particular goal. So they might want to know how could it help their building uh, be more energy efficient or, you know, have a better interior climate for their users. So I want to try to structure a bit of a well-rounded argument for people who are, yeah, are not just interested in biodiversity. And is there a bit of evidence that green walls in other places do that already? Yeah, uh, there certainly is. There's been lots of um, kind of studies about at the urban scale, how they might be able to change the microclimate, so uh, reduce things like urban heat island effect. And at the building scale, they've seen you know, decreases in energy requirements for heating and cooling can help moderate those fluctuations, and particularly in Wellington, where you have some older buildings that don't have a ton of insulation, these could help be an external retrofit. You said 
urban heat island? What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so cities tend to be hotter than their rural counterparts. And uh, just because of, you know, the traffic and the hard surfaces reflecting solar radiation. And um, so, and we don't have a lot of plants here and plants generally cool the air, um, yet they tend to be a bit warmer and bringing more plants in the cities could help mitigate that, particularly with climate change, we're already starting to see some more intense heat waves. So adding more plants into cities could help people feel more comfortable, but also could help our other fellow species, like birds, find little temperature refuges in the city. So potentially could be good for both birds and buildings. But Maggie wanted to test a few things out first. In her study site design, she's using two types of pockets, one slightly deeper than the other. And she's included a variety of plants. The two walls also face different directions, which she needs to account for. That's why I have two just blank control panels here to try to isolate any variations that are a result of the orientation, particularly as we're in a bit of a valley. And so there might definitely be some quite big light differentials and that could affect the plant growth but also the temperature readings that I'm getting so I wanted to have these control walls to try to isolate for that. On the control wall there's just it's like the basic wall and a little sensor protected with a plastic cover so what are you picking up with these sensors? So these sensors can monitor temperature and humidity they take a measurement every 10 minutes So I can look at a graph actually on an app on my phone that shows me the temperature fluctuations over the day. And uh, I've got them on every wall. So in my statistical analysis, I'll be able to compare how the different walls are performing kind of over the day and see if the plants are changing anything or if the insulation panel changes anything. Because I've also got sensors in the air gaps behind the green walls just to see what that little microclimate Uh, if that's any different than what I'm seeing out front of the wall. Because she doesn't actually have a building with heating behind the walls, she can't really monitor their warmth retaining capacity. But she will compare the temperature fluctuations of the standard insulation control panel versus the panels with the plants. There are other green wall systems, Maggie says, that are soilless panels or hydroponic setups. But she decided to go with these soil pockets, an irrigation system that she built, and some Wellington natives. They were installed in their new home on the 1st of August last year. And they've grown a lot since then. I was quite surprised, especially in spring. You can see here on this plant, there's the darker leaves, but then you can see all the new growth as well, which is the lighter leaves. And I've been taking images of them every week so I can track, you know, how how well they've been growing. Uh, So we've got quite a few different ones. This is Renga Renga, Lily. I've got a few caprosmas, there's grisolinias, um, these little kind of climber vines are mulimbeckia, kawakawa, uh, this is arata, it's been growing really well. Um, and that was really interesting for me because I know there's a few species of rata that are endangered and I like the idea of possibly cities becoming these little biodiversity conservation havens where you could actually nurture endangered species. Um, We've got a few different flaxes and uh, the New Zealand blueberry. Yeah, quite a few different different plants. And in terms of maintenance, I know these ones are test walls, so they're in for a couple of months. You've got your irrigation set up, but you're not really 
pruning or trimming them. In general, what kind of maintenance do you need for a living wall? It kind of depends on how you design them. So you can design them in a way for green walls and green roofs that they're sort of low maintenance based on the species you pick. And I think picking native species that are adapted to this microclimate really helps with that. Because I think with some exotics, they might have more specific soil or water or light conditions that can be more finicky. But these species so far have just been really hardy. But the pockets of soil are quite small, so there's presumably a limit to how large they can get. Yeah, which is probably good anyway. You don't want them too big um, hanging off the wall. I guess it depends on the look you're going for as well. So these smaller pockets, you've got a bit more density of the, the plant coverage, whereas the bigger pockets, there's kind of, you can see more, say, of the pocket itself. Mm. But yeah, these larger pockets are quite good at supporting really big plants. And hopefully, uh, you know, these flaxes will bloom and, and have big flowers that can support tui with nectar. The walls will stay in place until the end of February, so that you can see whether the plants have any moderating effect of the summertime heat. From her data analysis, she's hoping she'll be able to give building owners some recommendations. But these are not the only exterior green walls around. There are some New Zealand companies who have made others in the city. Yeah, I think there's like three in Wellington. Um, The two companies I'm kind of familiar with are Natural Habitats and Hanging Gardens. There's a Hanging Gardens one on the Kelburn building just on the other side of Kelburn Parade. And Natural Habitats has one down um, by the City Gallery. There's one there. So there's a a couple in Wellington. Have you been going to see them, check out their plants? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Because I talked to an ecologist and one of the recommendations for how to pick the plants was just go look at what's already growing in the city. Because that's a good indication of plants that are good urban adapter species and are pretty resilient you know you can find ferns growing in the stormwater grates and stuff so yeah just look for those kind of hardy sturdy fighter plants are there examples of places that have a lot of living walls so singapore is probably the best example of the kind of green city of the future that i'm hoping to see her and sir david attenborough both Greening the walls and roofs of our buildings could create a rich and extensive habitat if we wanted it to do so. There is one city where that idea is being applied on a major scale. Singapore. Two million trees have been planted here in the last 45 years. This city is now richer in species than any other in the world. Despite Singapore getting much denser in population, it has, over the last few decades, greatly increased its green coverage. They've got a lot of really, really large green facades. So green facades are kind of all climbing plants, and then the living walls usually have some kind of soil or growth media to support the plants. So they've got yeah, huge ones of those up, you know, tall skyscrapers, and they've got lots of green roofs, and it's been great to see them kind of really push that even in terms of policy so making it mandatory you have to replace the ground level green space that you've taken up with your building somewhere on the building so you get a lot of like terraced roof gardens and they also have incentive schemes 
to help encourage people to build green walls and green roofs. So yeah, it's a good example city for me to see that this is possible on a larger scale. And while these policies and mandates aren't in place for Aotearoa as yet, Maggie sees great potential benefits specifically in Whanganui Atara for the feathered locals. There's this cool halo effect with Selandia where uh, because of that protected habitat, it's not just increased birds in the park itself, but I think there's like a five kilometer radius where they're seeing increased native bird populations as well. And so part of this is trying to increase habitat connectivity. So using buildings to provide little stepping stones for birds to more easily get across the urban environment to these really critical core habitats like Zelandia particularly for climate change. When I've talked to some ecologists, they're saying habitat connectivity is going to be critical so that the species can move to better environments. If it's getting too hot or there's a storm, they can flee to these refuges more easily and not get trapped in isolated habitats in urban environments. You know, there is a limit to what you could replicate in terms of habitat on buildings just because of the soil that you can support and, and you know, the wind speeds and stuff. So they might not ever be able to fully replicate like a forest, but even if they can help the native birds get to patches of forest, that's you know beneficial for them. Thanks to Maggie McKinnon, PhD candidate at the School of Architecture at Victoria University of Wellington. Perhaps the sharp-eared amongst you noticed that I used a different Te Reo Māori name for the show today, Te Ao Hurihanga. The change from using the kupu Hurihuri to Hurihanga was made on the advice of both our Kura Whakawe and Tumu Māori here at Radio New Zealand. Hurihuri refers more to the physical action of turning over and over, while Te Ao Hurihanga better reflects what the show's about, documenting the ever-changing nature of our world. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon, with help from Liz Garten. And Ellen Rikers is the Our Changing World assistant producer. Sound engineering this week was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at Radio New Zealand. You can find our webpage on rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld or look for us on Twitter or Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, Wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.